Good morning. They put me after the children. Always a, a sign that something is not good when you have to follow the kids. You know, as, as they were baptizing Everly Mary, I was, I was wondering what it's like. The Bible doesn't speak to this, I don't think, but I wonder what it's like in heaven when someone new comes to faith in Christ. And I wonder if, similarly to what we saw here, I wonder if the heavenly hosts all stand before God and commit to have the back of that person, to say, we're going to stand with them as long as they live. I just, I just wonder about how God must celebrate when he sees people's lives changed by the, the truth of who Jesus is and the work that he does in our hearts. So what, what a great intro to any message, to have kids come up and to be brought into covenant fellowship. That is just awesome. And I really feel privileged to have been here to be able to share that with you. As we, as we prepare to open God's Word together, my name is Mark Miller. I'm Pastor Mark. I'm the third Pastor Mark, I think, that's here. And I heard a rumor that, that J.D. And, and Nancy and Sharon were all legally having their names changed to Mark also. So uh, we'll just be Mark 1, Mark 2, Mark 3, and so on. But uh, I am the pastor at Community Church of Issaquah. I've been pastoring in the Issaquah community for about 25 years. And uh, what a privilege to get to visit other parts of the family. You know, we don't know each other, but, but, but if you're a, a follower of Jesus this morning, that means He has put His Spirit in your heart. And He has put His Spirit in my heart. And that means that when we get together, there's a resonance that takes place because of the Holy Spirit that we share. And that makes us family. In fact, it makes us closer family than blood relatives. So you don't have to like me. But you are stuck with me for a very long time. And so this morning, I I, I draw your attention to the scriptures. I invite you to join me in prayer, if you would. Father God, it is not with a cavalier attitude that we open your word, because we know that this is a living and active thing that you have given us. Your word was inspired a long time ago, but each time we open it, you come and you illuminate it. And so, Father, we pray this morning, we we pray for the one who preaches and help him to get out of the way we did not come to hear him. But, Father, we came to hear from you. And we know that when we open your word together that you can speak through it and you can touch our hearts and you can ensure that when we leave this place today, we are different people than when we arrived. And so, Lord, I ask that you would guide us through your word and that its truth would impact us deeply. And we thank you for the privilege of having this, this testimony to your holy character. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As you know, we've been studying parables. And a, a parable is a, an interesting literary device. I'm sure that the, the folks who have been sharing with you in weeks past have, have mentioned this, but the, the par- a parable is really a special kind of story. And a parable has one point, one point and one point only. And in fact, the rest of the parable doesn't even have to make sense if the point is made. Sometimes we, uh, we Western audiences read parables and go, well, that doesn't make sense, or I don't see how that works. That really doesn't matter. 
to the Jewish audience, if the point was made, then the parable was a success. The, the word parable is, is rooted in, a, in, a, in a really a, a Greek word with a, a prefix before it. Parabole is really the, the, uh, the word from Greek. And it it's, has two pieces to it. Para means alongside or around or with. And, and balo is just the Greek word to throw or to cast. So if you put the two words together, what it really means is something that is thrown or cast alongside or beside. So a parable is really just a story that is brought alongside a particular truth that you're trying to teach. A parable is cast alongside this truth, and it's intended to help illustrate something. It is trying to take something that may not be known or may not be clear and explain it in terms of something that is known or understood. So that's, when we talk about parables, that's what's going on. It is a particular story with a point that is illustrating a particular truth. And today we're going to look at the parable of the yeast. It's found in Matthew chapter 13, verse 33. And Jesus is the one speaking. He, Jesus, told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. This parable is a little interesting because throughout Scripture, yeast is often used as a metaphor for sin. It shows up throughout the Bible this way. The first use of of yeast is back in Exodus 12. You remember the story of the Passover? How many of you remember the Passover? Really good. You know, I have to tell my group sometimes, you know, this is the universal sign for yes. But, but you guys seem to have gotten the, the note on that. By the way, I apologize for not being casual. <laughs> JD came up to me when I walked in and says, can, can we do something about this? And I said, can I just ask for grace? So I grew up in the South. And in the South, you just didn't go to church without a tie. And it's a habit that I've been, found it hard to break. I'm in a recovery group right now for this, but, but I would appreciate it if you would just extend me grace and, and just pretend that this is a spot on my shirt or something because, uh, because uh, this, is, this is just me and I'm sorry. I don't know how we got from sin to ties, but anyway, uh, back in, in, in Exodus 12, you recall the story of the Passover, right? And it was when, when God was fixing to take the Israelites out of Egypt. And so if you recall, they were, they were sort of sitting there ready to go. They had their traveling clothes on. The car was running out in the carport. I mean, they, they were all ready to get out of town. And so they, they baked their bread without leaven or without yeast. As, as you know, if you're a baker, it takes a while for bread to rise, doesn't it? It takes some time. They didn't have time. So they ate unleavened bread. And so then you see throughout Scripture this idea of leaven, of of yeast shows up, and it almost always, almost always is painting a picture of sin, the the, the, uh, corruption of sin in the lives of people, which is why in a symbolic way the Jews will rid their homes of leaven, of yeast. Even Jesus, when he talked about uh, yeast, used it in this way. He said, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. 
In other words, beware this religiosity that can creep into real spirituality. Thankfully, we, we don't have that problem today, of course, but, but back then they had a problem with religiosity. And Jesus says, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. Later on, Paul uses this analogy the same way, talking about the Pharisees and the religious leaders who, who tended to make our, our walk with, with God, our, our spirituality, a matter of just doing the right things and avoiding doing the wrong things. But in today's verse, in fact, this is the only place where this idea of yeast is used as an illustration of God's kingdom. Unique, unique usage. So let's talk a little bit about, I'm, I'm not a baker. How many of you know what yeast is? All right. You know what yeast is? All right. Uh, it's a fungus. This means that you bakers, whatever you put into your bread to make it rise is very similar to what you have between your toes when you're at the gym. All right? Uh, It's a fungus. Yeast is a fungus. And And it converts the sugar that it finds in flour, it converts it to alcohol, and it converts it to carbon dioxide. This is what yeast does. And that's why it's used in both the distilling industry as well as in the baking industry. In the distilling industry, spirits are made when the grain, yeast encounters the sugar in the grain and it converts it to alcohol. In bread, we, when we see bread rise, it's because the yeast has encountered the sugar in the wheat or whatever product you're using, grain product you're using, and it it converts it to carbon dioxide, which, of course, the gas makes it expand. This is why it needs to be healthy. My wife tells me that that yeast is kind of alive, because it is a fungus, after all, growing in your food, and, uh, and it needs to be healthy. In fact, if you don't have healthy yeast, your bread won't rise. It'll, it'll just stay flat, and you'll think you forgot to put it in there. So it needs to be healthy. And, and this interesting uh, analogy that Jesus uses, why in the world would Jesus use yeast as an illustration for the kingdom of God? Why would he do that? A couple of observations. Number one, the amount of yeast that you use is very small in comparison to the amount of flour that you use. You don't use a whole bunch of yeast. A little dab will do it, all right? So a lot of flour, small amount of yeast, a couple of translation notes that might be helpful. Uh, When you read the New International Version, which is what I I read from this morning, uh, it talks about a large amount of flour. Uh, In the Greek, it really says three measures, Three measures. Uh, In our Western measurement, that would really be about a half a gallon. About a half a gallon, about maybe, I'm sorry, about a half a bushel, my mistake, half a bushel, about five gallons by dry measure. So if you imagine a a five-gallon bucket, some of you have those at home that you haul stuff around in, that's how much flour we're talking about. About five gallons of flour. And then it says, the, the word that says it's mixed, the, the word in Greek literally means hidden. Hidden. It's, it's just a tiny amount of yeast that's hidden. It's worked all through it. You, you really, once it's worked in, you can't find it. It's, it's dispersed throughout. And the idea is one that it just takes a small amount. Your parable that you just studied about the mustard seed. 
Same concept. The mustard seed at that time was the smallest known seed. There are others that are smaller than we know now, but in, in Jesus' day, that was the smallest seed they knew. And so this, this very tiny seed that's sort of innocuous, doesn't, doesn't give a lot of promise, doesn't, doesn't offer much. But Jesus talked about how it would grow and expand and become magnificent. Same concept that, that we're picking up here is that it, it starts small, but it grows. And the, the point that Jesus is making is, is that the kingdom is a matter of influence, not of power. That Jews believed that when Messiah came, he would come in power. They expected him to, to come riding in on a war horse, dressed in armor, carrying a sword, the flag of God in his hand. And, and they would come in and kick butt and take names. And, and before long, the Roman invaders would be cast out and, and the Jews would be reestablished as the masters of their own destiny. This was what people wanted from Messiah. This is what they expected from Messiah. So you can imagine that when Jesus showed up, Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, riding on a donkey, saying things like, do good to those who persecute you. Love your enemies. That just didn't cut it. Because you see, it, it didn't fit the paradigm that they had, had already established for who Jesus was. He was going to come in power. And more importantly, he was going to reestablish the Jews in power. Years ago, I, I, when I was pastoring uh, Mountain Creek Christian Fellowship, which was a church that I started uh, back in the 90s, uh, I had a pastor, a, a local pastor, who had, was pastoring a large church, and, and he came to me to try to recruit our church to join this rally that we were going to have on the east side. And they were going to meet over at a, a large park and, and he wanted to get all the local churches to come. And, and, and he said, we're going to show the world that Christians have clout. And I remember thinking at the time, we're not called to have clout. Clout is not how we do what we do. We don't further our agenda through power. I don't accomplish the Great Commission by twisting someone's arm until they cry, Uncle, okay, I'll accept Jesus. You see, we, we accomplish what we accomplish by being people of influence. By, by getting out of our little fortress where we celebrate one another, and, and it's great to celebrate one another, but if all you do is sit around and take care of each other and celebrate each other, you're just a club. You're not the church. All right, we're, we're called to be people of influence, to get out and to rub shoulders with the world so that they will see that there's, there's something inside of us that's missing in their lives. There's something different about us. St. Francis once said, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. That's who we're supposed to be as followers of Jesus Christ. People of influence. If we rely upon power, if we rely upon the ballot box, if we rely upon politicians, if we rely upon rules and regulations, if we rely upon laws and standards, we've missed it. We've missed it. Because Jesus says the kingdom, the kingdom moves forward 
by influence. Secondly, yeast is a great analogy because it works by transformation. It converts sugar to carbon dioxide, just the way the Holy Spirit transforms the old false self into the new true self. You understand that because sin has corrupted everything, that, that, that who we are in our carnality is our, is our false self. It's, 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 it's our go-to in our fallenness. And it and, and doesn't do any good to deny it's there. It is there. I've got things about me that I hope you never learn. That's all right. You can laugh. There's things about you you hope don't show up on the 10 o'clock news either. <laughs> the truth is we all have an old false self. And when I'm stressed and when I'm afraid and when I'm, when, when I'm in pain, if I'm not careful, I'll revert to that. I'll go back to that old false self, the old stuff that worked, the old tapes. But see, what God does when He sends His Holy Spirit to live inside of you, and you realize that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, that's what happens. God literally takes His Spirit and surgically implants it into your heart. And that Spirit is now living inside of you. And it starts to transform you. It starts to change you. It starts to make you into something you could never make yourself into. And all of a sudden, you start to move away from that old false sinful self and into that new, true, redeemed self. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Dough dough can't make itself rise. And we can't make ourselves rise either. We have to have an outside influence come and do it for us. Only God can convert that old false sinful self into that new, true, holy self. And that's what God just loves to do. In Ephesians 3, God, Paul says, God can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to His power that is at work within us. See, this is what generations of Christians have called sanctification. Sanctification is that process where each and every day through that surgical work of God's Holy Spirit, I become less and less like this old fallen carnal self that I was and more and more like this new, true, holy, redeemed self that only God knows what it looks like. But if I will get out of the way and let Him, He will take me from this and He will move me to this. All too often, we Christians identify ourselves in in terms of the old carnal self from which we came. Understand this, that may be who I was yesterday, but praise God it doesn't have to be who I am tomorrow. I literally can be changed by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit so that who I was yesterday is not who I am today. And thank God who I am today does not have to be who I am tomorrow. Does that make sense? Does that work? Universal sign for yes, I understand. Okay. Don't fall asleep on me. It's lonely up here and I need your help. (laughs) Number three, what you see on the outside is the result of what the yeast does on the inside. What you see on the outside is the result of what the yeast does on the inside. So when God sends His Holy Spirit to live in us and we experience this transformation, this changing of our hearts, this old, carnal, false, sinful self starting to change into this new, true, holy self that God has in mind for us, well, when that transformation happens on the inside, guess what? You're going to see it on the outside. 
This is what James is getting at when he says faith without works is dead. He's not saying that you're saved by your works. He's saying if you genuinely have faith, if you're genuinely transformed by the Holy Spirit of God, you're going to see it. It's going to show. Do you honestly think that the creator God of the universe can come and take up residence in someone's life? And I didn't see that. It's going to show. It's going to, it's going to work itself out. It can't help but work itself out. This is why the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit is what you will see. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that will show up on the outside as evidence that God is doing His work on the inside. You guys are good. Now, remember what the Jewish view was like. Jesus spoke against this all of the time because, you see, the Jews had this view, and I'm sure it's only them, but the Jews had this view that if I just do the right things, it will make me into the right person. If I can just get my hands under control... My heart will be right. And Jesus constantly was saying, it doesn't work that way. You don't fix a heart problem by corralling the hands. You don't fix an attitude problem by enforcing behavior. This is why it is such a waste of time. We spend a lot of time as the church telling sinners they're sinners. You know something? The Bible says that sin produces guilt. Sin produces guilt, which means if I am living in my sin, I will be guilty. I will feel guilty. I may not call it that. I may not know what to call it. But we can count on the fact that sin always produces guilt. That means sinners don't need to be told they're sinners. Sinners need to be told there's hope. Don't tell me what I already know. Tell me something I don't know. Don't tell me I'm hurting. I can feel that. Tell me how to get relief. Jesus' whole point was that you change what's on the inside and you'll get a change on the outside. Friends, if there was one thing as a pastor I'd love our churches to understand in the world today, don't fall back into Jewish Phariseeism. Don't go around being the, 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 the activity police for the rest of the world. Why would you expect the world to live Christianly? They're the world. They don't have the Spirit of God living inside of them. In fact, for a non-Christian to be forced to live Christianly is to make them live a lie. Why would I expect this? Why would I... You know, people think that Christians are folks that sit around worrying that somebody somewhere is having fun. (laughs) Is that really how we want to be seen in the world? I tell you something... I want people to look at my life and say, I don't know what he's got. But whatever it is, I want some of that. I want some of that. I want the peace that he has. I want the joy that he has. I I want that sense of purpose in life that he has. I mean, I'm messed up. I know that. You know that. But you know something? I'm not as messed up today as I was yesterday. I was really bad yesterday. And tomorrow, I'm going to be even better. Because of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit that's going on in my life. And that's what God calls us to. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, Those who have Christ reflect the Lord's glory and are being transformed 
by the Holy Spirit so that we literally display His likeness. Think about that. God wants to make you look just like Jesus. That's what Paul says, revealing His image in us, His likeness. I mean, if you ever want to know what God's purpose in your life is, that's it. That's it. He wants to take someone who looks like you and over time transform them into someone who looks like Jesus. Because think about it. How is the world going to see the face of Jesus if it's not in you? Where are they going to go find it? If the world is going to see Jesus, he's going to see it in you and me, friends. That's where it's going to happen. That's what God's about. So let me say in summary, that's what pastors say when they've run out of points. All right? All right? And I, I really am summarizing. Uh, in summary, Jesus says the kingdom starts to spread invisibly when God takes up residence in our hearts. When, 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 you, when you throw yourself upon the mercy of God, the truth is you don't have a clue what you're even asking for. I come to God for totally carnal reasons. I come to God because my mother's dying of cancer. I come to God because I lost my job. I come to God because my wife has me sleeping outside. I come to God because even the dog doesn't like me. For whatever reason, I come to God for purposes that satisfy me. I want something God has he can give me. That's how I come to him. And that's okay because it's the only way a carnal person can come. But he doesn't leave me there. He puts a spirit in my heart that starts to transform that old, carnal, sinful, false self, little by little, sanctifying me, turning me into the, the very image of His Son. This is, this is the plan for my life that He has. It, it's unseen at first, but it renews our hearts and our minds on the inside so that I have this desire to please God on the outside. I had a little boy come up to me one time in church. His dad had come to faith in Christ. And he came up to me one Sunday morning and he says, Pastor Mark, what has happened to my dad? I said, what do you mean? He's a different guy. He, he's kind and, and, and he spends time with me and, and, and he, he takes care of me. I mean, he's just, he's just not the same guy. He never gets mad anymore. And he said, I mean... It brought me to tears because I knew what this guy was like. And to see the power of the Spirit turning this guy into someone new right before my eyes. You know, friends, the world can't deny that. They can argue you your theology all day long, and they will, but they can't deny the fact that I was one guy one day and the next day I am somebody else, and they cannot argue that at all. And that's who we're called to be. That's how we're called to live. This is, this is what kingdom living is all about. God living on the inside, changing me on the inside, so that it manifests itself on the outside, so that the world can see and that they will be influenced by what they have seen. That's what kingdom living is. So as we look at this parable of the yeast... Let's agree this is now a no-loafing zone. All right? Time is short, friends. Time is short. We don't know how much more time we have. But if we sit around 
polishing the tractor instead of harvesting the fruit, we've missed it. So let's agree, we're going to get out of the way of what God wants to do in our lives. We're going to get out of the way so that my agenda gets put aside and we say, God, what's your agenda? Which he's already told me what it is. He wants to make me look like Jesus. He wants me to look like Jesus. This week, you're going to leave this place and head out into your mission field. And the Great Commission that was read this morning talks about while we are going into that mission field, the imperative in the original language, the only imperative is to make disciples. That's our call, to make disciples. What does God need to do in your life this week so that you can be a more clear representation of the face of Jesus? You think about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this, what would almost be an innocuous little story. It's just one verse. So easy to blow over it. And yet the truth is very profound because it reminds us of how you do your work and your work is good work. So Father, this morning I pray that as we go out into our mission field this week, we would have that sense that each and every day you want to change us, to make us more and more like Jesus and less and less like that old fallen self. And that by allowing the world to see those changes in us, they too will be inspired to come and surrender their lives to the Savior. Father, forgive us for the times that we think we can advance your kingdom our way. Where we can do your work in our power. The truth is, Lord, we know it doesn't work. You're God and we're not. And we're real clear about that. And so we ask, Father, that we could be vessels in your hands, tools fit for the Master's use. That as we are that screen upon which redemption is projected to the world, that they would see in us this ongoing transformation, this sanctification, this long obedience in the same direction, this this sense of God doing His work little by little so that Jesus starts to emerge. Father, at Easter time in this church, there was a painting that hung on the wall and as we looked at it, it took a while, but finally we saw the face of Jesus come out. Lord, our lives are a lot like that painting. At first, you don't see Him. But I pray that as people continue to look at us, the face of Jesus will become clearer and clearer to the point that now we can't ignore His face. We we can't even see the old painting because the, the face of Jesus is so compelling. Lord, thank You for being a God who loves us enough to not leave us where You found us. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.